We've come to the last of the Minor Prophets, the last book in the Old Testament. Uh, we've been on a journey of studying all 12 of the Minor Prophets, and uh, I know Tucker and I have enjoyed it. I hope uh, you have as well. But the last word, this is the last word in, in another sense as well, because after Malachi, there's about 400 years between uh, Malachi and the events of the gospel accounts, like John the Baptist, the appearance of John the Baptist on the scene, preparing the way for Jesus. In fact, Malachi, we won't get to this text, but Malachi speaks about uh, the work of John the Baptist uh, and calls him Elijah. But Jesus tells us that John the Baptist was that Elijah that Malachi prophesied about. 400 years between the Testaments. It's called the intertestamental period or the period between the Testaments. It's also called 400 silent years because there would be no prophetic word during those years. So this is the last word in many different senses. I want to give you a little uh, historical context. And this has been crucial in, in our study of the, the minor prophets to put it in its historical setting. As you will recall, Judah was carried off into Babylonian captivity, uh, foretold by Jeremiah that they would stay there for 70 years, and this is God's punishment for their idolatry. But after 70 years, he promised he would bring them back home. And there were three waves of return. The first one was in about 536 B.C., about 42,000 Jews were led back to Jerusalem, to Judah, by Zerubbabel and their primary mission at that point was to rebuild the temple of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had leveled. The work began but opposition arose and the work stopped for about 16 years and the people were discouraged. In fact as we studied Haggai they uh, were kept putting it off and said this isn't the right time. Well Haggai and Zechariah came on the scene uh, by God's bidding and to tell them it is time. And so they began again to rebuild the temple. And the temple was actually completed. Uh, they call it Zerubbabel's temple in 516 B.C. About 60 years after that, Ezra led a, the second wave of Jews from Babylon back to Jerusalem in 457 B.C. And Ezra's emphasis was a spiritual revival getting out the, the law of Moses and recommitting uh, the people to following after God's will. After all, they've seen what happens when you disregard the will of God. Uh, consequences, namely the punishment of God, comes. So they recommit to keeping the law as they should. About 13 years after Ezra led this group back, Nehemiah led the third group from Babylon. And if you'll recall, Nehemiah led in the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem. Jerusalem was defenseless, and, um, and so Nehemiah um, just had this strong desire to lead in this effort, and God blessed that, and so the walls of Jerusalem are rebuilt. Malachi, where does Malachi fall in? Malachi, we believe, was a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah, so in the 400s B.C., and there's some clues to that. What we'll find in the book of Malachi is that uh, the, Jew, the temple is complete and they're offering sacrifices again. So that indicates that the temple 
was restored, was rebuilt, and, uh, this, and the sacrifices were being offered. Also, there was a Jewish governor that led them, and this fits what the Persians, uh, that their, their plan to have a governor in Judah, and we find that this is the case. We also find in the book of Malachi that some of the Jews were marrying non-Jews who were idolatrous and so Ezra also dealt with that, so that makes them also contemporary. But that's the historical context. The people, as God had predicted, the Jews had come back home to Jerusalem. The temple is rebuilt. The, the law of Moses has begun to be taught, and the people commit to obeying it, and the walls have been built. But there's still some things amiss, and Malachi God directs Malachi to address those things, but also is pointing to the coming of the Messiah as well. One more technical thing, but I, this I found fascinating, and I hope I can convey it to you. There's a unique literary style that's used in the book of Malachi. It's called dialectic, dialectic. And it's not the name, I don't use that word until tonight, but... Dialectic was a literary device, and here's how it works. First of all, there's a charge that's given or an assertion that's made by God. And then the people, the people's response to that charge or that assertion is given. And then following that, there's a refutation of their reply uh, with more information. And this is God's response to, to their, their reply. There are seven examples of this, of this type of literary device. Don't worry, I'm not going to try to conquer all seven, just two of them. And they're both in the first chapter. So if you will, look up Malachi chapter 1. Watch this literary device, but as always, watch the message that's being given to the people of Israel who've returned from captivity Watch the message that's being conveyed, and then let's make application to, to our lives today. Here's the first charge in the first chapter. The charge is, the assertion is made, God says, I have loved you. And he's speaking to Israel. I have loved you, says the Lord. God had always loved them, even when he punished Judah for their rebellion, for their idolatry. He loved them. And now he had also demonstrated that love by bringing them all back home. That's the assertion that's made. The reply is given. By the way, with these replies, you'll often find the phrase, yet you say. So the, the assertion is made, God says, I have loved you. Yet you say, verse 2, in what way have you loved us? In what way have you loved us? And apparently this reflects that that many of the people of Israel could not, perhaps because of their current circumstances, they're still struggling a bit, cannot readily see or appreciate the love that God continues to shower upon them. Um, they would have to recognize, if they would, that they've been blessed abundantly. They've been brought back home from captivity and now their city is rebuilt. There's so many things, positive things that have happened, but yet they're still experiencing some difficulty. 
The rest of the story is the reason they're experiencing difficulty is because they hadn't fully uh, submitted to the will of God. There were still issues with obedience to, to the law of Moses. And God was punishing them yet for that. So here's the refutation of the reply. God responding to their response to the assertion. And it begins like this in the last part of verse 2. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord, yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. You'll recognize Jacob and Esau are the twin sons of Isaac. And if we can go back and rehearse their story, their, their story at home and how uh, Jacob was favored and Esau gave up his birthright and so forth. But as Malachi refers to Jacob and Esau, it's more about their descendants than those two individuals. The descendants of Jacob or Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. A nation came from him, the Israelites. God had blessed the Israelites. God, God's purposes were being fulfilled through the nation of Israel. Edom, on the other hand, are the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, and they had been destroyed. Obadiah, one of the other minor prophets, told about their pride and how God had, had uh, pride had led to their destruction by God. And in fact, Malachi speaks to this. Let's look back at the end of verse 2 and keep reading down to verse 5. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom, the nation of Edom, has said, We've been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. In other words, Edom, surviving people of the nation of Edom may say we're going to be rebuilt, but God is, is stating you can try, but it's not going to work. So verse 5 your eyes, he says to Israel, shall see, and you shall say the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. So God's message is, I have loved you, and I love you still. I have loved you. And as evidence for that, they could look at their history, Israel, even though Israel, the northern kingdom had been carried off into Assyrian captivity, Judah, the southern, southern kingdom, had been carried off into Babylonian captivity to fulfilling God's promise God had brought them home the people of Judah and some of the Israelites as well T the temple is rebuilt the walls everything we've already discussed they could see God loved them the nation of Edom it was no more so God is saying just look at that Look at the descendants of Jacob. Look at the descendants of Esau. You can see I have loved, I have cared for the descendants of Jacob or the Israelites. Let's make application. Doesn't God also say to us, I have loved you. I have loved you. We can know of God's love in many ways. 
Let me point out two. One is through his provisions. How God has blessed us. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you, Jesus said. And, and all these things have to do with the basic necessities of life. There may be times in our lives when we may not have had what we thought we needed at the time, but I believe each and every one of us can look back on our lives and see even during the difficult times that God has carried us through. He's continued to provide for us. I was reminded of uh, when Paul and Barnabas were in Lystra that uh, they performed a miracle by God's hand. And the people of Lystra began to try to worship them. And, of course, they immediately put an end to that and tried to direct their attention, don't worship us, worship God, the creator of heaven and earth. And they said this about God, the creator of heaven and earth. He did not leave himself without witness and that he did good, gave us rain and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. God has never left himself without witness. Nature shouts of the existence and the power and the care of God. God has provided, and that's one way that he has demonstrated his love. But the secondly... And obviously, as Christians, we would acknowledge this. We can know of God's love from the gift of his son. 1 John 3.16 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Harry Lehman used this text in uh, communion meditation last Sunday. And I told him afterwards, when he was reading that verse... A song came to my head, not a religious song, but a song by, sung by Tina Turner. I want to, no, it's not by Tina Turner. It's a song back there somewhere. I want to know what love is, and I want you to show me. I may be foreigner. <laughs> but the point is, that I think the world is shouting for that. I want to know what love is, and I want you to show me. And God has demonstrated his love for us by giving his son. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And folks, no matter how difficult life may get, we can know God loves us because of the gift of Jesus and all the spiritual blessings that we have in him. God says to you and to me tonight, I have loved you and I love you still. The second dialectic, the second uh, literary device that's used in chapter 1 may be summarized by this charge. You have despised my name, says the Lord. He's speaking to Israel. You have despised my name. Notice this is right on the heels of him saying, I have loved you. And they could be reminded of how God had loved them in many ways, many demonstrations of that love. But then God follows that by saying, but you, you have despised my name. The Look at verse 6 with me. A son honors his father, a servant his master. If I am the father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts, to you priests who despise my name. I'm a father, you've not honored me. 
I'm the master, but you have not revered me. You have despised my name. The reply is, yet you say, end of verse 6, in what way have we despised your name? And Israel could have countered this assertion. What do you mean? We've rebuilt the temple. We've rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem. We've reinstated worship to you based on the law of Moses. What do you mean that we have despised your name? And then there's the third part of this dialectic. God refutes their reply. Verse 7, how have How had they despised his name? You've offered defiled food on my altar, says the Lord. Look at verse 7 in its entirety. You offered defiled food on my altar, but, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible, or the table of the Lord, referring to the altar, is despised. You see, you go back to the law of Moses... And the law of Moses was clear about the type of sacrifices that they were to offer. Not only the type of animal, but the quality of the animal that was to be offered. In fact, look with me to Leviticus 22 and notice the language that's used. Whatever has a defect, and it's talking about the animal sacrifice. Whatever has a defect, you shall not offer. And it shall not be acceptable on your behalf. And whoever offers a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord to fulfill his vow or a free will offering from the cattle or the sheep, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Those that are blind or broken or maimed or have an ulcer or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord nor make an offering by fire of them on the altar to the Lord. Sum it up by saying, It was to be the very best, very best of their flocks. That's what God specified in the law as to what their sacrifice should be. What was happening in Malachi's day? Look at verse 8. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? When you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Is it not evil? What were they doing? They were keeping the best of their flocks for themselves and offering the maimed, the blind, the sick to to God as a sacrifice. Notice this. This is kind of makes me smile. Offer it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? What's the answer? Absolutely not. He's not going to be pleased with that kind of, hey, governor, I've got some food for you. Here's my sick, sick lamb. I mean, how, what would a governor, how would a governor respond? Offer it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Verse 9, but now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to you. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably? The answer is no, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 10, who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you. Imagine that judgment from God. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. God is saying you've been worshiping me with the worst that you have. 
And I have no pleasure in these sacrifices. You ought to just shut the doors of the temple. You ought to just shut the doors. Verse 11. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. God's name is great. And the message is, and so your offerings to me should not be the worst, but they should be the best. This passage, verse 11, made me think about a text in the book of Psalms. Psalm 113, verse 3. From the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. I want to sing or sing a song with you uh, based on this verse. It's a song I learned many years ago, I'm guessing about 25 years ago, and it has a, it's accompanied by sign language. But for, for those of you who may know sign language, the sign language is incomplete. So it's going to be choppy if you understand sign language. But I remember some of the basic movements for the basic words. It's, it's called From the Rising of the Sun. And we rehearsed it at uh, the nursing home. So those of you who are at the nursing home, I'm counting on you to sing out with me. And I want to show you the motions as well. From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the name of the Lord shall be praised. From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the name of the Lord shall be praised. So praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same the name of the Lord shall be praised I've often thought that was a, a beautiful song but also a beautifully simple song but profound in its meaning in that because of who God is and what he has done, he deserves to be praised from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. But the sad thing about the is Israel in the time of Malachi is all the abundant blessings that God had brought to them and bringing them back home and, and providing for them to rebuild the temple and and uh, to restore the law and to build the walls around Jerusalem. Their city was intact now. But they weren't honoring God. They weren't praising God. In fact, let's keep reading uh, in verse 12. You see, the problem was in Malachi's day, 
the people were not praising God properly. Verse 12, but you profane it in that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit, its food is contemptible or um, despised. You also say, oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. They had not praised God. They had not honored God. They were offering blemished sacrifices, profaning his name. Here's the application. Have we despised God's name by giving him our leftovers? Lester Sellers, I've heard him say, I share this quote from time to time. He said, don't give God what's left. Give God what's right. And folks, what's right is our best. What's right is our best. Isn't that the application? Isn't that what Israel was missing? They're offering, they're offering sacrifices according to the law but not the kind of sacrifices the law prescribed. They were offering God the worst and not their best. Are we offering God our best? So the application is, let's give God our best. Let's give our, our God our best in our worship. Fully engage in worship. Sing, pray, study, with all of our hearts, fully engage, acknowledging that he's the audience, we're the participants. And don't sit back and, and, and let somebody else do the worshiping. No, let's engage, every one of us, giving our best, singing to the best of our ability. Some may say, well, I don't have a good voice. That's not what God has called for. He's called for the, our best. Are we giving God our best in worship or what's left over? Let's give God our best in our service as well. Doesn't God deserve our best? Sometimes I'm afraid we get so wrapped up in the things of this world. And by the way, doing a good job at work, glorifying God. Yes, we can glorify him at work. But let's also glorify God in our service to him, whether it's at work or it's in our neighborhood or in our home. Let's seek in every aspect of our lives to give God our best and not our leftovers. Isn't that what Jesus would say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. With your whole being, Jesus is saying, love the Lord your God. And that will include giving him the very best that we have to offer. And yes, this next text was given to Christians who were serving as slaves. But they were told, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. 
And that principle, folks, applies to us in every aspect of our lives. We want to do our service to God heartily as if we're serving God himself because we are and not to please men. So though these uh, dialectics were given a long time ago in the 400s B.C. to a nation that God had blessed, I feel they're so relevant to us today. But let me remind you of the two applications Number one is God says to us, I have loved you. I have loved you. And he's proclaimed and demonstrated that love most profoundly through the gift of his son, Jesus. We should never, ever doubt the love of God. But then the second application is don't give God what's left. Give God what's right. And what's right is our best. And let me point out one more thing. The second application is the proper response to the first. Because God has loved us, we should desire to love him in return to the very best of our ability. Because God gave his best, we should give our best in response. Yes, God did give his very best. He gave his son to die for us, to show his love, but also to save us from our sins. And if you've never obeyed the gospel, we hope and pray you'll do that tonight. But I, my prayer for us is that as Christians who have accepted that gift of salvation on his terms, that we'll live out our lives, the rest of our lives, giving God our best and not our leftovers. If you desire the prayers of the church or if you're ready to obey the gospel of Jesus, we invite you to come right now as we stand and sing. Live for Jesus, oh my brother, his disciple ever be. Render not to any 